Welcome back to another Fatal Conceits podcast, dear listener. The show about money, markets, mobs, and manias, not necessarily in that order. If you haven't already done so, please be sure to head over to our Substack page at bonaprivateresearch.substack.com. There you'll find plenty of articles numbering now in the hundreds, maybe the thousands on everything from high finance to lowly politics. And of course, many, many more conversations just like this one under the Fatal Conceits podcast tab. Today, I'm delighted to welcome back to the program a longtime favorite of the Bonner Private Research Readership. It's someone I've known for many, many years, Mr. Byron King. He's a prolific writer, a Harvard-trained geologist, a renowned energy and resources expert, and among the most popularly requested guests on this show. Byron, it's a pleasure to welcome you back to the show. Well, hello, and it is a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Uh, Byron, just before we we jumped on uh, the recording button here, we were talking a little bit about uh, the ease of traveling uh, around the world, flitting from one continent to the other. And I know it's been a lot in the news lately, and potentially uh, th- this ease of travel may, be, uh, may become a relic of the past if uh, energy markets continue to go the way that they're going. But before we get to everything that's happening in Europe and everything that's happening globally, uh, I want to just catch up with your travels. Since we last spoke back in May, uh, you were up at the uh, PDAC uh, Miners Conference up in Toronto. Mm-hmm. You sent us uh, at Bonner Private Research a couple of choice picks uh, of the place. It looked more like maybe a rock concert than a, <laughs> than a mining show. It was mobbed. Give us your impressions uh, from the front lines of, uh, of the heavy diggers. Oh, yes. The... Prospectors and Developers Association of Canada, which is PDAC, P-D-A-C, is an annual uh, mining conference. And usually it's one of the biggest in the world. Uh, The last last time they had one was in March of 2020, literally just days before the world shut down. Uh, They did not do it in 2021. Uh, In 2022, uh, they were going to schedule it in March. But uh, because of just sort of residual COVID reasons, they moved it to, to June. Uh, now, that's that's a couple of uh, interesting points there. Usually the PDAC conference is in March because that's kind of a time of year in the Northern Hemisphere when a lot of people are not out in the field exploring. You know, the, the winter is just ending, snows are melting, things are muddy, mucky, can't get around. So traditionally, that was when all the miners could come down into the big evil city and you know, get together and have their conference. Well, they moved it to June, uh, you know, because of COVID, uh, and so that created some issues because a lot of people would rather be out in the field working in June and ca- catching the good weather, the good field season. So fewer people showed up uh, on, on the technical end. A lot of the geologists, a lot of the engineers, and what have you, were out, were out in the field. Now, managements tended to show up, and they actually liked it because they said, it means that my geologists aren't here, and nobody can poach them away from, from us. <laughs> Very <because> good. Because <laughs> there's a shortage of people in the industry. Uh, where you know It's not a COVID thing. It is just a demographic issue that after all these years of underinvestment, uh, and when you say underinvestment, you know, we're not pouring money into new mines and equipment and all that. Well, that means you're not hiring people, and you're yeah. not hiring people, so when when the young people go to college or university, they say, oh, gee, where can I get a job? Well, I'm not going to go into the mining industry because there's no jobs. Well, here we are now, you know, years later, 
and we're saying, gee, we have a whole bunch of gray-haired and white-haired people, and uh, and you know we've got a few young people coming who have come in in the last recent, but there's a whole missing cadre of of of, of talent there, uh, and uh, you know you you can't you really can't do too much uh, without a lot of you know smart people working together. That's true in mining, and it's true in everything else. So, but that's uh, that's that's one angle to it. Now, the the good news is, and you mentioned that I had sent you some photos from up there. I was stunned when I showed up. It was Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, you know, conference. On Monday morning, the line was unbelievable just to get into the convention center. It's the Rogers Convention Center in Toronto. I think that's the right word. Um, big, huge, sprawling facility, gigantic. There was a line outside the door. The, the Toronto police were out there in a nice way, you know, with, with sort of crowd control measures, lining everybody up, going through these mazes of, of rope lines and everything else. And uh, it was just sort of, you know, we, we can only feed so many people in at such and such a time. And, you know, the fire marshal has his rules and all those sorts of things. So it, it was absolutely crowded. It was absolutely mobbed. There was a large contingent of, of presenting companies there, management teams and the investor relations people, not so much the technical folks, because like I said, they're out in the field. Uh, a lot of... Uh, a lot of people were there, you know, investors, uh, but, you know, they looked like just sort of retail investors, just kind of tire kickers. A lot of people who are just sort of mining curious, you know, they, they're, they're not, they're not, this was not, some of these people were not part of the mining crowd that you would right. expect to see. They're not part of, you know, the gold bug crowd, the gold stacker crowd, that kind of thing uh, that, that we, that we've seen in the past. Uh, I think what we, what we're starting to see in, in an investment sense is that a lot of people, you know, after a couple of decades of go, go, tech, tech, you know, uh, Bitcoin, Bitcoin, all this kind of, all this sort of, you know, chasing, chasing the vaporware, you know, chasing the ethereal uh, returns, which, you know, okay, you, people made money in the stock market, but they made money sort of chasing things that were really hard to put your hands around. You know, yeah, I mean, you, you can't really touch a Bitcoin. It's a little you know, electronic thing, you know, it's not, it's not a coin, just if people don't know that there is no such thing as a Bitcoin, you know, they, you know, they try to pretend that there is, but there isn't. But a lot of people I think are uh, looking now saying, oh, gee, you know, looking at the way the world is and the way that, you know, monetary policies are going, where the dollar's headed, things like that, you know, they want to get tangible. And so, you know, what can be more tangible than, you know, rocks and minerals and ores and mines and, you know, you know, you know, big plants that stamp out metals. And so, yeah. you know, we had the gold, silver, you know, aspect, of course. But, you know, then it's all it's the other things, too. It's the copper, lead, zinc that the world needs. It's the uh, it's the battery metals for the battery cars. It's the technology metals for the all the tech. So it was a crowded situation up there. Um and uh, over and above that, I'll just mention that, you know, the international travel, it's fun once you get on the airplane and you go wheels up. I mean, once the airplane takes off, it typically, you know, flies where it's going and lands. It's those stupid airports. Holy smokes. <laughs> awful. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I you know, I, I actually drove to Toronto for that trip, but I've been on some other you know trips elsewhere in the last, you know, couple of months since we've spoke, spoken. And uh it, it's just miserable the air the the terminals are crowded the the ticket counters are crowded the baggage is crowded the the restaurants are crowded and it's just it's and 
you know, it's all these people with their revenge travel, you know, like, oh, I didn't travel for two years. And I'm going to travel the hell out of it now. And at the same time, you know, the airport's downsized and, you know, they laid off the airlines, laid off their baggage handlers and they laid off the ground crew. They laid off the gate agents and ticket agents and everything. And so, you know, now, now we, have, now we have to deal with it kind of with, you know, resurrecting it. Uh, it it's what our friend Bill Bonner has said numerous times in his, uh, daily essays that you know when you when you shut off an economy it's not like you turned off the light switch and now you flick the light switch and it all comes back on and the lights are just as bright no once you power down and once things you know sort of relax and, and just sort of re-equilibrate to a certain level you don't just you know pump it back up and you know up and up it goes again and so and so we see that in airlines and we see that everywhere you know just we could talk about that all day yeah, no, absolutely. And you put a lot on the uh, on the table there all the way through from, you know, underinvestment in particularly, as you mentioned, people forget about human capital. You know, there are, there's a whole cohort of students who opted for, uh, you know, let's say softer uh, type <laughs> academic pursuits and they forgot how to make stuff and how to build stuff. And actually that stuff is kind of important in this world if you want to do things like feed people and medicate people and shelter people and move people around. And, you know, there's this entire scaffolding that undergirds an economy, which you don't get uh, to learning about in gender studies uh, courses, alas. But uh, just wanted to get uh, or just double down and underline that um, your commentary there on travel. It, again, is something that we just kind of take for granted, whether it's business, uh, pleasure, emergency travel. There's many, many reasons that we're uh, you know that we're tra traversing the Atlantic or or the Pacific or what have you. Over in Europe, this past I've just spent the past three weeks in uh, some in Scandinavia and Denmark, Norway, Ireland, the UK, a little bit in Spain. Every single one of those countries at various times during the past month has seen pilot shortages, uh, worker protests cancelled flights, the kind of uh, zoo-like atmosphere at the terminals that you described before, where it's just, you know, there's not enough people to get too much stuff done. And a, a lot of this stuff is the result of so-called supply chain disruptions. But uh, as you alluded to then, it's it really goes back to turning off the, the, the switch of an economy for a couple of years, under-investing for a decade, maybe more before that, and then expecting that we can just sort of resurrect this this magical cornucopia of of uh, you know plentiful energy supply things there when we need them, um, but that's as, as you said not not exactly how it goes. And I just wanted to uh, bring us back to where the rubber meets the road here, and it's a subject that you touched on, or rather a, a place you touched on at the beginning uh, of our little Bonner private research uh, project here. And that was you wrote some very prescient words on the situation in Germany with regards to their energy. I don't even know what we would call it at this point. It's, it's a, approaching a full-blown catastrophe, but that now seems to have bled over into France and the Netherlands and other, other dominoes are falling. Mm -hmm. um, do you want to maybe catch us up to speed on Germany and then we can work our way across the continent and back to the US? Oh, sure. Yes. Uh, we we go back many months to 2021, you know, back to last year, so to speak. I wrote an article that you were nice enough to publish. I think, you know, Germany's energy Stalingrad, 
you know, I mean, it's you know, a, a not unintentional use of a very you know emotional word. Uh, you know, the, the Stalingrad, which was you know the, the destruction of, of of a German army that was encircled in the Soviet Union in the Second World War, and you know they. they there were so many ways in a tactical, operational, and strategic sense to avoid, you know, marching your army to destruction. And, and you know, I mean, obviously the Soviets are very glad that, you know, they, they destroyed Stalingrad and, and uh, uh, you know, destroyed the German army. And, and, you know, I mean, one side won the war, one side lost the war. But you would think that the side that lost the war, the Germans, they would, they would, they would learn something about not losing other wars, not doing stupid things. <laughs> and now, now that is translated into a certain sort of German politic that they have these days. I mean, there's a certain, uh, you know, uh, intentional non-martial, you know, unmilitary aspect to Germany anymore. I mean, most of their, most of their combat aircraft are grounded. They don't work. Uh, I don't know that, I don't know that they have any working submarines. They have a very small handful of tanks. They, you know, the army is relatively small and, you know, and, and that's probably, that's probably fine, you know, in a world at peace. Uh, and, uh, but, but at the same time, they have done everything uh, in a strategic sense to completely screw up their energy situation. I mean, any country, any group of people anywhere, there's, there's like three things you need. You need food, you need water, and you need energy. And right. if you, if you, uh, you know, Germany has never been able to grow enough food, uh, which is which is with the whole Lebensraum thing. I mean, you know, that goes back a hundred years, uh, more, more than that actually. Um, uh, you know, I guess they have, I guess they have enough water, but Germany's never had enough energy either. I mean, you know, they were, they were, they became an industrial power based on coal. They have no particular oil or gas resources. Uh, they, you know, by by virtue of trading with the world, you know, they they've been able to get the energy they need. But but then they intentionally for the last you know 25 years adopted this greenism, green green thinking, and uh, it's kind of like you know it's the noble virtues of green, you know that that uh, uh, we you know we are virtuous because we are green. And it's kind of like well you know you 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 are you can afford to be virtuous because you are economically privileged. You know you you you're a wealthy country. For now, you know, uh, you've got money. You can buy the things you need, uh, and you feel good about yourself, you know. And so we're going to be green. And uh, you, you go to a place like Germany, and you see solar panels everywhere, and you think, well, wait a minute, you know, I, I, I understand how the world works in terms of, you know, orbiting around the sun and all that. You know, it's it's you get a lot of sun in the summertime, and you don't get much in the wintertime. And then they have oh, we have windmills. Oh, great! You know what happens when the wind doesn't blow? Inter intermittent energy is not a way to run a modern economy. And and people who say oh, you know, we're going to have renewable energy and run our world, I no, you're not. You know, okay. I mean, just you know, don't don't label me and don't call me names. I'm just telling you that you're wrong. It's not going to happen. Uh, but but they they walk themselves into this now. For better or for worse, I have some opinions on this, but I mean, they they tied themselves to the natural gas system of Russia. Okay, mm -hmm. if you're going to do that, then you need to adopt a certain kind of politics between yourself and Russia that will keep the keep the lines pressurized. You know, um, but uh, but you know, perhaps maybe it's the U.S. you know pulling puppet strings, or it's the whole it's the NATO. Uh, concept, or it's the EU concept, that, you know, of of, uh, of just you know, we we want the Russian, 
we want their natural resources, but we don't want to like them. You know, we don't want to deal with them. We don't want to, we don't want to accept them for who, who they are. And then you get into the whole, oh, the Russians are this and the Russians are that. You know, I don't want to go there. You know, I don't want to get it. You know, there. Okay, there is a thing. You know, the Russians are Russians and the Western Europeans are Western Europeans. And yeah, I get it. I'm in North America. I was not part of Napoleon's invasion army. You know, I, you know. So you know, that's uh, you know. But but I understand there is a thing going on there between east and west you know uh, we had we had our window our 30-year window of post-cold war opportunity to kind of you know make things work with the russians but here we are today we you know i mean i'm not making policy but uh you know here the world is today uh the western world at least is somehow thinking that they can sort of you know put russia into a corner and uh and and bully them around and and the russians of course have a completely different view of it um the the russians are saying you know you know if you if you don't want our natural gas you know you know we've got we've got lines of steel pipe ready to ready to ship it elsewhere you know i mean we'll we'll ship it to china we'll build a pipeline across the tin shan mountains and send it down to india you know we'll 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 do what we have to do you know and uh and and we don't we don't need you which gets back to your question about germany what's going on with germany they are backed into a corner. They have painted themselves into a corner um, on energy. I mean, you just, I, you know, I told you so. We, I, we we wrote about it a year ago, but, you know, in other publications, other times, other places, we were, you know, I at least was talking about this years ago. I mean, I can, I, you know, if I wanted to, you know, dig through the files, I could find you the articles that I wrote, um, you know, but uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's it's crazy. And uh, and I, I suppose the only good news out of this is that, you know, Germany has become an energy example uh, for the rest of the world not to emulate. You know, don't yeah. be those guys. Don't do what they just did, uh, which is paint yourself into a corner so that the newspaper articles in Germany are talking about. Uh, we're not going to have hot water this winter. You're going to have, you know, you're going to have three hours of hot water a day. You'll, you know, there'll be three one-hour windows every eight hours that you can, you know, wash your dishes or take a shower or something like that. You know, uh, you know, we're German industry, which is, you know, it's the backbone of their economy is, you know, chemicals industries, metals industries, manufacturing industries, all of which need, you know, natural gas or, or they need some sort of an energy to make it work. And uh, uh, and 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 what do you do when it's not there? Now, from yeah. an American standpoint, you know, I, I I am just appalled at the energy ignorance um, in America or the energy dissimulation, you know, the, the mm-hmm. idea that, oh, don't worry, we have plenty of natural gas here in America. We'll just do, we'll liquefy our natural gas, we'll LNG it, and we'll send it over. We're going to have a Berlin airlift to Europe, except instead of, you know, flying coal into Berlin like we did in, you know, uh, uh, in 1948, um, we're, we're, we're going to send you LNG. It's kind of like, no, we're not, you know, no, we're not. We don't have enough wells. We don't have enough pipelines. We don't have enough LNG capacity. We don't have enough tankers. <laughs> we don't have enough people. We don't have enough <laughs> tanker crews. You know, we don't have, you know, and then over in Europe, they don't have enough unloading points to even receive it. So so anybody who says, we don't, you don't need that Russian, that Russian pipeline gas, we'll just send you the LNG. I, you know, it just strikes me that, you know, people are just like living the lie, you know? Yeah. And it's, it's, you know, it's, uh, shouldn't go without mention the, um, 
the very not coincidental timing of the uh, of the scheduled <laughs> of the schedule maintenance on the Nord Stream pipelines that uh, that Mr. Putin has conveniently scheduled in, and and as you you know outlined some of the some of the warnings uh, that the German uh, Minister of Economy or Minister of Energy rather is is giving preparing his his nation for we're going to have hot water shortages. They're talking about closing down public swimming pools. Um, I've seen them even beginning to start dimming the street lights. I mean, this is this is Germany, a highly industrialized economy in the 21st century, that is in many ways kind of a a canary down the decommissioned coal mine uh, in some ways for the rest of us in the West. And just to, for a little context for our listeners here, uh, Germany's economy is it's a four trillion dollar. Uh, Economy. This is a four trillion dollar GDP. It's, you know, California for for comparisons about maybe three and a half. Texas is two. So it's a couple of Texas's uh, worth of industrial output. This is not insignificant. Um, and energy costs there. I had a look at a couple of charts which I'll post in the uh, in the transcript below. And and you've uh, you've sent these around before, Byron, where for the ten year period from say. 2011 to 2020-21, before those prices began shooting up, we were averaging about 50 euros per megawatt hour. That's that's for baseload electricity. It's now about three or roughly approaching when I looked at it last, about 350 euros an hour. This is a sevenfold increase in the underlying costs of, you know, think of all of those inputs, you know, all of those factories, every cog, every widget, every everything. And the, and the situation is potentially even worse now. I see in France, where their underlying uh, baseload energy cost has gone up from about the same, about fifty euro per megawatt hour uh, over that ten-year average, to now closer to four hundred and fifty euros. So when you put together France with Germany, and let's say you, we throw in the Netherlands, there that's another trillion-dollar GDP uh, economy. We're looking at something of approaching a third of the industrial output of all of Europe now kind of weighted under these, you know, this being regulatorily hamstrung and that are really, really struggling to keep the lights on. Um, you know, how long until these dominoes fall our way? Uh, well, oh my gosh, you're, 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 there's about 10 different, 10 different <laughs> angles on that one. Um, in, in one respect, you know, uh, Europe, Europe's problems are North North America's benefit. And, you know, we, we, people are saying, oh, the dollar is getting stronger. And, 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 you know, the dollar is stronger and gold is actually sold down a little bit lately, which indicate, you know, dollar up, gold down. Uh, but, you know, gold's still in the 1700s. I'm not worried. Uh, but one of the reasons for that is that if that, that money is exiting Europe, it's exiting euros. And moving to North America to the dollar, the U.S. dollar, uh, because uh, markets are forward-looking entities, and markets look ahead and they say, "Huh, I don't know how Europe is going to power its way through this mess." You know, um, I, uh, you know, it, what, you know, it, it's July, and what are, what's what's Europe going to be like in December, January, and February? You know, how many? I mean, you know, the, the, right now as we speak, in the middle of July. Europe should be importing gas from wherever 
and filling the storage caverns and they should be importing oil and refining it into the into the fuel oil tanks and things like that. They should be doing all those things, you know, storing up the acorns for the winter, like the smart little squirrel, you know, so that when the winter comes, they can they, they have something to, to do. But they're not doing it. And we mentioned the Nord Stream pipeline. I mean, uh, there is a there's a, a pumping system that made by Siemens, the German you know, uh, conglomerate company, uh, and and they you know every now and then you have to uninstall the turbines and you have to take them and refurbish them and you know clean them and fix them and replace parts and all sorts of that's happening in Canada of all places. You put, they put them on a boat and send them to Canada, and uh, and there's this issue with Canada didn't send the pipe the turbines back because of sanctions on Russia, and so the Russians are using this as okay. Well, if we don't have the turbines, hey, what do you want us to do? We can't, we can't, you know, pressurize the pipe and send the send the gas. Um, so uh, the question is, uh, uh, you know, what, you know, what happens now? Is this just some sort of a, of a of a political game that the Russians are playing? Like, if you're going to jerk us around, we're just going to shut your gas off without really saying we're shutting your gas off. We'll blame you for it, you know. Which you know, that that's a perfectly valid. That's perfect. That's a very Russian way to do it. You know, uh, I mean, I mean that as a compliment, frankly. I don't, I don't <laughs> uh, You play your cards, you've got sure. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, but but meanwhile, every day, every single day that those that those meters of natural gas, those cubic meters of natural gas do not show up in Germany and go down into the storage caverns or whatever. That is a that is going to be a tight day, you know, come January and February when it's cold and dark. Uh, and uh, I. Uh, you know, I, you know, what can I say to the German Minister of Energy? Good luck, sir. Good luck, my friend. You know, uh, I mean, not, you know, it, it, it's, it's, been, it. it's been years in the making. It's been years in the making, but but it's being made right now. You know, right. Uh, I've, I've used the analogy of, of, you know, the Ukraine conflict is it's Pandora's box and it has opened you know, we've opened the Pandora's box and a whole lot of bad things have come out of Pandora's box. You know, we, we call it the Ukraine. And um, the thing is, though, that that box was there long before the first Russian tank ever rolled into Ukraine, you know, and all those bad things were inside that box long before, again, that first Russian tank rolled across the border. Uh, I mean, there were a whole lot of just issues, global issues, regional issues, national issues, all stored up in Pandora's box. Uh, and you know, and and when the military operation began, and the West immediately, you know, defaulted to we're going to sanction Russia, we're going to do this, we're going to do that, we're going to send weapons to Ukraine, we're going to fight to the last drop of Ukrainian blood. When when all that happened, that opened up the box, and all these issues that were that were frozen issues uh, came out of the box, and now they're thawing out. You know, energy issues, food issues, uh, uh, um, uh, fertilizer issues. Um, you know, manufacturing issues. I mean, it, and it's every. It, it has to do with globalization. It has to do with financialization. It has to do with deindustrialization. Uh, people say, well, you know, all that all that world's fertilizer that that we that we want to trade in the world. A big chunk of that comes from you know Russia and Ukraine. Yeah, because you know elsewhere in the world, like in the United States, or you know, we, we we've underinvested in that here. You know, or when people say, well, you know. Uh, we, we've got a shortage of diesel fuel. Yeah, because in the United States we've been closing down refineries for you know for a long time. I mean we've been converting real refineries, oil refineries, into these biodiesel refineries, which you know, basically take you know cooking oil and turn them into diesel. But you're you're not they're not available anymore to refine diesel. Well, where were we getting diesel from? We've been importing it from Russia, you know. Uh, 
it's right. it's it's just amazing. Russia, Russia, in so many ways, is the marginal producer of so many things. And as you learn, everybody learns this in economics 101. You know, the the cost of anything is set at the margin. You know, I mean, it's right. the stock market. You know, if the cost of a share of stock is a hundred bucks, well, then the whole market cap of that company is based on hundred dollar shares. You know, because somebody was willing to pay a hundred dollars for it. Um, the the yeah, those, those marginal the prices marginal, are like. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, just just to say those those marginal producers and the marginal the price set at the margin makes me think a lot of of swing voters. I mean, th- this is where uh, elections are won and lost. This is where prices are are set. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, with Russia, Russia is the world's. You know, Russia has the most excess oil beyond its own internal consumption available for export. For example, I mean, R- Russia. Russia can. Russia, I believe, has more oil available to export every day than Saudi Arabia because Saudi uses a lot of its own oil internally. Um, uh, you know, look, look at look at other things. Look at Russian natural gas. Russia is one of the largest natural gas exporters in the world, and because they're a continental power, they can they can string pipelines and do it. You know, they've got that power of Siberia pipeline that is sending immense amounts of natural gas to China. And there's a power of Siberia number two and even number three in the, on the books, you know. So uh, uh, Russia, you know, look at the minerals that Russia and the metals, you know, R- Russian nickel, Russian copper, Russian titanium, um, you know, Airbus and Boeing, you know, have talked a good fight about, okay, we can get by without Russian titanium. Well, yes, you can for, you know, Six months, eight months, a year. You know, maybe you can stretch it out, whatever. But um, you know, you know, the, the, you're not going to get you're not going to get too far without you know Russian titanium. Look at right. uh, look at look at things people don't even think about. They don't even think about uh, noble gases like helium and neon, argon, things like that. You say, well, who uses helium? I mean, for party balloons? No. Um, I you know, I just I saw an article. It's in the Harvard Crimson, the school newspaper, not too long ago, about how physics students at Harvard are changing their uh, PhD um, goals because they don't have enough helium to do the work that they need to do in you know uh, in particle physics, which requires all sorts of you know helium-based uh, you know materials and sources. Uh, we, I think you and I have talked about this. I think was the, the neon situation, neon mm-hmm. gas. I think, mm-hmm. Well, who needs neon gas? Well, you need neon gas to make those computer chips that we don't seem to have enough of. You know, right? Where does neon gas come from? Well, Ukraine and Russia. How do you get neon? You liquefy air and you bring it down to certain temperatures. And at certain temperatures, you you know you have liquid 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 nitrogen, liquid neon, and and then you have to separate it. It's very complex and it's very energy intensive. But you know, I mean, I mean, Russia has invested in doing it, and you know, in the in the U.S. certainly, I mean, we haven't, you know. So it get, it's get it gets into that whole underinvestment thing. We've underinvested in things that we need. We've underinvested in people that we need to do the things we need. You know, and, uh, a, a real quick point that you know, it's it's easy to say, oh, we have too many people majoring in gender studies or whatever. Yeah, we probably we do. I agree. Uh, you know what else we have? We have too many people who major in like applied math or physics or something like that. And then they go to Wall Street and write algorithms and, 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 and trade because they, you know, they can make more money uh, using their math skills trading on Wall Street than, you know, but of course, you know, the good old days of working at the research lab for General Electric or whatever, those are gone because, you know, there is no General Electric research lab anymore. They're, you know, you know, Jack Welch made sure of that. 
um, and you know, and, and so many other companies have the same. You know, they they some what corporate America used to invest a huge amount, a, a large, significant portion of its cash flow into real R and D. You know, the, the good old days of AT and T, Bell Labs, the good old days of uh, I mean, I mean, companies, you know, company, you know, oil companies used to do R and D, and oh my, oh, you, you could just, you could go, you know, even companies like Boeing, I mean, very, very low R and D in terms of what they need to do. You, you would think that companies would, would do, but, but they're not. They haven't. You know, it's because they've been Wall Street driven. You know, instead of instead of putting the money into R and D, which might take years to pay off if ever, you know, they'd rather just buy back shares of their stock or just you know pay a higher dividend and make the Wall Street analysts happy. And thank you very much for listening, folks. That will uh, do it for part one of my conversation with Byron King. As you can probably tell, there's lots more left on the table that we discussed, uh, which we'll save for part two. You'll be able to find that next week. Uh, Byron and I talked about the imminent bifurcation of the global monetary system, what a gold slash methane backed ruble might look like. And we got into a bit of the nitty gritty with regards to the situation over in the Ukraine uh, and had a few sort of prognostications about where that might be headed and what it might mean for energy markets, both over in Europe and back here in the United States. We also spoke about what Byron's doing with his own money and where he sees markets going for the second half of the year. I hope you'll join us for part two of my discussion with Byron King next week. In the meantime, as always, please head over to our Substack page. You can find us at bonnerprivateresearch.substack.com. And we hope to see you there and on our Fatal Conceits podcast next week. Thanks a lot. I'm Joel Berman. Goodbye.